Hey, welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. This is Raj Rabel with Elias Randall. Elias, I ran across a uh, an article the other night. I think I texted over to you. I don't know, maybe like nine, ten, eleven o'clock at night. But uh, I was I was on the uh, FS Insight website and reading some of Tom Lee's research, and this one struck me: chicken wing prices have fallen sixty two percent. So here's the here's the best part. You sent that to me. And then I shared it on Facebook immediately. So I just stole your idea and ran with it right away. Did you get any likes? Oh, yeah. People were all about it. And then a good friend of mine who he, he calls himself the, the wing king because he loves chicken wings so much. <laughs> he, uh, he responded, I guess the grocery stores haven't got the memo yet. Well, you know, but that, that's normal, right? It's at the chart we shared was wholesale prices. So it's going to take some time for that to get to the retail level. Um, but there's actually deflation in the chicken wing market, which is shocking. Well, what we, what I thought was funny about it is Jonas in our office, who's only been on like a few episodes, he brought up how upset he was about chicken wings in one of the episodes. I know that Doug played it last night on the radio show, uh, that he was disappointed that his, that chicken wings, that his bag of chicken wings at uh, Sam's Club or Costco, I don't remember which one it went to from 12 bucks to 19 bucks or something. Not that's relevant, but I think it is a little bit of a sign as to how prices are starting to fall. And what Tom Lee says in this is prices falling. These, these prices have fallen out of 2019 levels. And he said, it's not just easing. That's purely a deflationary sign. And that doesn't mean that there's necessarily deflation out there, but we're starting to see the easing of prices in all aspects of our life. You know, I think it's 70 straight days, the price of the pumps went down. Uh, we might see that come back up. I'm buying milk for $3 a gallon instead of four. Chicken wings are down 62%. Uh, there was an article uh, two days ago on Bloomberg that 70% of all homes in the 97 hottest housing markets have taken price decreases. You know, I, I mentioned uh, my friend of mine out in Arizona who sells real estate and has been there really for 20, 20-ish years, I think. Uh, they were having a poker run where you visit five open houses in one night, collect a poker card, and the best hand wins some prize. So it went from the Phoenix market where if you wanted a house, you had to like get approved and be on a buying list and the house was sold within two hours to now they have to have big events that cost money to move them. So we're starting to see the easing of prices in most aspects of life we are and i think um this year just inflation inflation's been the biggest thing going against the markets and just every time we had an inflation report that was worse than expected it caused a sell-off it caused a lot of selling this year you know rising interest rates has caused the bond markets to go down in value so it's been a big you know it's the it's the star of the show for 2022 um but I think the data is becoming more positive. I hope investors start to, um, and I think we are seeing more positive sentiment, but you know, again, it's not like we're out of the woods. It could, if we have a mistake, a policy mistake or something and inflation starts ticking back up, you know, we could just be kind of back on the wheel spinning again and starting over. So we'll see, it's going to be, we're still in a tricky environment to manage, I feel like. So just kind of got to, I think all year we've been saying make smart choices and live with them. I think that's kind of the outlook you need to have right now. Well, just um, think about what leads to inflation. Basically, people having a bunch of extra money 
not enough supply and more demand. So I just pulled up before I came in here. Um, I, w- I, lo- I look at Bloomberg multiple times a day. The headline on Bloomberg this morning on the app, a tsunami of shutoffs, 20 million U.S. homes behind in energy bills. So you think about that. If you're behind in your energy bill, what's going to get hurt next? The discretionary items you're going to purchase. Um, and Tom Lee in this article talks about a, ho- a cooling housing should lead to falling CPI and it should actually help inflation as long as there's not just an outright, outright collapse. And we don't know what'll be, what will happen. I, I don't think we believe there's an outright collapse in housing coming. Do I think people that believe they have X amount of equity in their home might be surprised in a year or two how much equity they have? Yes. And what I mean by that, if you bought that house for 500000 you're watching Zillow every day, and you watch the Zillow Zestimate go to a million dollars, it might be seven fifty in, you know, in a couple of years. That doesn't mean that there's a housing collapse. It just means that you have less inherent equity in your house. What I'm curious to know, and, and I don't know the answer to this, maybe we'll get some info on this. I've been getting letters from my mortgage company for the last year. Well, it stopped about three months ago, but for the last year about cash out refinance. I'm interested in how many people did a cash out refinance based upon those elevated prices early this year. So I had a low interest rate, did a cash out refi. Now their house is, you know, now they have potentially more debt on that house than it's worth. I don't know. I know they were limited in 20%. You had to have at least 20% equity, but that, that might be the next shoe to fall is people have home equity lines of credit. Most of the time, those are adjustable rate. Those could adjust up. You know, we did a show back in March, April, May on um, housing statistics from 09 till today. And in 09 or 08, there are around 10 or 11 million adjustable rate mortgages. Today, there's only about a million. But that doesn't, you know, the the number we didn't get was, you know, what are the home equity line of credits out there? And what do those look like? Because that could still cause an issue with with home valuation. But yeah, it could. I don't. Um, I, I don't foresee. I, I've seen some things being promoted about a big housing correction. I personally don't see it. I don't see how it's possible. I don't think the data supports it. Um, I definitely. We're already seeing it. The prices are going to slow down and cool off. We're already seeing that. But that doesn't. And economics. And I think this year is a good. Uh, one thing I've been thinking about a lot recently is recency bias. And everyone, because our last recession was the great financial crisis. And in the history of finance and the capital markets, scary event. But not every recession or economic slowdown or bear market, that, that's not always what it is. We can have an economic slowdown that is like minimal pain. Like I feel like what we're going through this year Although on paper, everyone, it sucks because everyone's less rich on paper. It's really not that painful. And there's not a whole lot out there that's super scary. Like we don't have national banks potentially going bankrupt or anything like that. So that that's something I think also to keep in mind is we can have economic slowdown. We can have recession without a lot of super, super bad things that come with it. Yeah, I agree with that. One one thing too, and I got this, I got a question about this the other day um, from a client. They asked, is it time to buy? 
and you know, this is like a 40 year old. I'm like, yeah, is, is it a good time to buy? Yep. It's always a good time to buy. It may not be a good time in the short term, but in the long term skew of things, it's more than likely a very good time to buy. And one of the things that we've talked to people about is you're not going to time the market. Like we talk about when the market go like in general, we don't time the market, but people think they're going to time the bottom of the market. You're not going to be able to time the bottom of the market unless you're dollar cost averaging and you happen to dollar cost average in on the right day. But the idea that you had X amount of dollars sitting on the sideline and you're going to time the bottom market, if you get the bottom timed, it's strictly luck. Yeah, it's there, it is. there's no skill in that. And yeah, you might get lucky. People get lucky. It's like the casino. Do people go in on their first win and hit the jackpot or their first spin and hit the jackpot? Yeah, they do. Is it repeatable? No. More If they keep going back, they're going to lose. So is a good time to buy? Yeah, it's always a good time to buy if you're in the accumulation state, in the accumulation accumulation phase of your life. So I know, I know for a fact I bought shares close to the bottom. Here's how I know that, because I systematically invest. Just every week, money goes into the account, makes an investment. But I'm not I I'm never hoarding cash to try and time the bottom. And then there's some there's some technical analysts that I follow that we're talking the support level in the S and P five hundred is thirty three hundred to thirty four hundred. Well, anyone who was hoarding cash and waiting for those levels, we never got there. And now all the technical analysts are saying the market bottomed in June. And then just last night after our radio show, one of our fans who goes to the happy hour to talk with us. He, um, he's a market timer. I can tell just by conversation, he's all cash right now, doesn't own any equities. And he goes, I'm, I'm waiting for the market to pull back again. I know it's going to. And I, I asked him, how do you know that? And he goes, I don't know. <laughs> well, that's not like, that's not a reason. It's, it Correct. goes back to, if you're going to be in the market, you're either in or you're out. You're not both market timing can't be done. And it's funny. We talk about the broad market. Like the broad market, we don't, we don't time. Well, there's also people out there that think they can buy and pick individual stocks and time it based upon their earnings and different things. I'm here to tell you, you're not going to win. And here's why you have a trader, like, let's just take a trader mentality. And that trader mentality is when I have a profit, I'm going to sell and take the profit, right? Oh man, I, I put eight, 10,000 bucks into this thing. It went up. 10% take my $1,000 profit. You know what most people do that think they're traders? You know what they can't do? They can't sell their losers. And yeah, that they don't one know when to cut bait. They don't know when to cut bait. Yeah. They'll hold on to the loser, and that'll destroy all of their other gains that they had. And then, oh, by the way, what if you happen to put your money in when the market in general is going down? If you look at the broad market, on a day where the market's down 1% to 1.5%, 95% of all the stocks are down. It doesn't really matter what you bought that day. The screen's red the everywhere. The screen's red. Yeah. Yeah, when we have a day where it's, you know, you know, half a percent one way or the other, you can have a mixture of results, but when the market's down or you get a 5, 10 or 15% down market, most stocks have correlation to the stock market. And and I do I believe there's money to be made as a trader. I think if you implement strategies and stick to them, but I'm not talking like just watching the price movement or talking one one strategy or two, but defining 
When are you getting in? When are you going to set your stop loss? There's a lot more to it than just buying and then selling. Okay, here, but I, I don't believe don't I don't believe the average person is outperforming a diversified portfolio by trading by short term trading. There are traders that have made money long term. Okay, yeah, there they're are. traders. They're not investors. They're traders. They do it full time. That's their job. Their job isn't, I go work this other job eight to five and I come home and spend about 35 or 40 minutes or I watch this TV show and take this hot stop, stock tip. That's not what they do. They trade all day. they're not just reading a subscription to Motley Fool to figure out one stock. <laughs> Think about it. If you, biggest employer in town is Rockwell. That would be like me coming home and reading an engineering journal for about 45 minutes a night you know, we, a, a weekly publication, an engineering journal, and think I could go like start implementing high level projects at yeah. Rockwell. Now you're going to design an airplane. We're the only industry in the world that people think they can just casually mess around with it. And they really know what they're doing. And it's funny. <laughs> I can talk to somebody and know if they know what they're doing or not. I don't have to tell them. They say a few things or ask me a question. I'm like, yep, you don't know what you're doing. I know you don't know what you're doing. I won't tell you that, but you don't know. Yeah, because I, me telling them, guess what they're gonna say? They'll they'll have a reason why they know. I mean, just it's just not worth me telling them that they don't know what they're doing. Just sit back and wait. They'll learn a lesson at some point. Yeah i I had someone the other day ask a question. They wanted me to explain. This is a basic question. Explain the difference between growth investments and value investments. And I'm kind of confused on this. I don't really understand it. And then they finished the question with. Do you know what I mean? So then I, I was thinking to myself, I must be giving them a look. I probably shouldn't be given that look. Um, but I just knew by the question, they're not really on the right path, but they were asking it. So I think I said something like, I'm trying to actually understand what you actually know before I answer this question. Cause I can't, it depends on their level of knowledge, right? That's going to determine my answer. It's not just a blanket answer for everyone. Cause I got to gauge where you're at before I even explain, can I get in the weeds? Do you just need a, a vague answer so you kind of understand? Um, but I always, I, I, I get a little bit of enjoyment and entertainment out of some of those questions. Here's, um, here, here's a great question for every single person that thinks they can do this themselves. If you can't tell me what the difference is between an exchange traded fund and a mutual fund without going to Google, you can't do this yourself. I mean, seriously, if you don't know, and I have people that are trying to pick stocks and pick mutual funds or ETFs and they don't know the difference, come on. Like, come on, man. Come on, man. We should start a come on, man segment. Is, who does that? Stephen it's A. Smith? E yeah, it's an ESPN <laughs> come on, thing man. during football season. Uh, but, you know, that leads into another topic. And it's like, what do financial advisors actually do? And I think we talked about this on the Radio Liar Live show a couple of weeks ago. Sometimes we do a poor job of explaining to people what we do. If you think about what we talk about in the show, we talk about a bunch of financial stuff, but... In general, what do we actually do? And I would say what we do has changed over 20, 25 years, this industry. 25 years ago, even 20 years ago, and I go back to my cousin who hosted the first live call and radio show in our local area. Mike Grimm, he's the voice of the Golden Gophers now. I know I'd really want to be a Hawkeye, but he's the voice of the Golden Gophers. He told, told me about this show, and we're on the same station. We have the longest tenured live call-in show, but it was different. Back in 1999 and 2000, he was doing this show and people would call in to get a stock tip. And guess what he do? 
one of the advisors in there would put him in the computer and be like, yep, I think it's a good buy or it's a sell. And they were literally telling them, giving advice over, over the, yeah, uh, over the, over the air today. We can never do that. But which it would the, be, if it was compliant, it would be fun to do a show like that. It would be fun, but I don't think it's relevant to people because I don't think most right. people think they're stock pickers today. And the other thing is the information's out there in 2000, the internet was here but it wasn't widely adopted today. If you think about today, you want information, just go to Google, type it in, figure out anything you want to know. That's true. So, so what we've done is we've morphed from delivering good investment advice and stock picking and picking mutual funds to how do we deliver holistic financial planning advice? We've really morphed more into this behavioral coaching side of finance. Our job is really to educate people put them on the right track. And if they're not there, get them on the right track through a financial planning process, because that's what people can't go to the internet and get. They can't go get our tech stack. If you think about how much money we spend on our technology to get to the point where we give somebody a fully written financial plan or a one page premier vision document, the amount that that person would have to spend on an annual basis to do that would be cost prohibitive. Just to provide the technology. Just to provide the technology. Okay, what's the financial planning software? A few thousand dollars a year. Then you go get a real Morningstar analysis system, 2,500 bucks a year. So someone paying a 1% fee, if you got less than a million bucks and you're getting a full financial plan, you're getting a deal. That doesn't add into all the other behavioral coaching. That's the technology expense that's out there that people don't understand. Going and setting up an Excel spreadsheet doesn't count. That's not a financial plan. That's a cash flow analysis. <laughs> if you're setting it, hey, I have nothing against a, an Excel spreadsheet. It's not a financial plan. It's a cash flow analysis. That's what it is. Yeah, and those are, and some of the higher level financial planning concepts and the things we do, they're a little bit hard to conceptualize, right? So that's another challenge of our job is, not only presenting the information, but presenting it in a way that people can understand. And then they're actually moved to execute those items. So that's something I really believe. Anyone who's going to hire a firm, you should hire them with the intention of taking their recommendations and just how just how we're compensated. There's no, there's no incentive to not make your clients money over the long term. The more money your clients make, the more money your firm's gonna make. So implementing all the financial planning ideas, that, that's a huge part of making that commitment. And that's really on the client side, right? Because we can kind of, here's your map, but it's up to the client to follow it. And I think, I think our firm is a good example. If you look at our most successful clients, what are some of the things they, they have in common? Well, one, they have a financial plan. Two, they implement the recommendations that we talk them through. Okay, so what do most people think we do? I think, I think just in general, people just think that we pick stocks or just pick investments. Yes. I think that's kind of like the basic understanding. So I want to go through and just do an exercise of list all the things that we do. And what's interesting about this, nowhere on here does it say pick stocks or pick mutual funds or pick ETFs. This is all the value add stuff that happens behind the scenes that people don't really realize what's happening. So one we provide household spending review and budgeting. The first thing we have to do for people is what? Get their budget under control. Figure out how much you're spending. 
we had a we had an individual in here the other day, and, and you know exactly who I'm talking about. He said, "Hey, I want to make sure the information you're giving me is good. Like I'm going to hold you to it." I said, "That's great. You told me you don't know how much you spend. If you don't tell me how much you spend to a very accurate level, all the information I give you is going to be garbage." So I told him. And he made him think he's like, so you can't put it on me like you getting your budget under control. And I shouldn't say budget, your spending path, because people think of budgets. What are my expenses? I don't care. I mean, I need to know your expenses. I need to know what you spend. Two different things. I asked my parents, how much you're spending? Oh, some minuscule amount. I'm like, no way. You spend way more than that. I know what you guys do for recreation. So one. We provide spending review and budgeting. Two, we do retirement planning. We create retirement plans for people. And, and, if, and if you think about the retirement plans, there's really two offshoots of it. You've got the accumulation plan, right? How do we get to where we need to go based upon your goals, your priorities, what's important to you, your risk tolerance, all those different factors. But then more importantly, once you actually hit that golden age where you're going to start living on this, how do we transition to transition this into a distribution plan so that you last longer than your money? I think beyond just picking, I think the basic thing people think we do, picking investments. I think the second thing is, because I've had plenty of conversations with people that say something like, well, I'm just accumulating or saving right now, so I really don't need help. But a lot of people, they're, when they transition to retirement and now it's time to make an income plan, there's a far less people of the do-it-yourselfers, there's less that are confident in being able to come up with an income plan for themselves. Here's what I would tell you about your person who said they don't need your help. They maybe don't need your help to pick that investment. You're right. But you know where they need your help? Figuring out if they're on track and if not, what to do to get on track. Two of my friends this last two weeks have come to me Hey, I need to make sure I'm on track. You know, they're 45 now. They're going, whoa, it's not that far away. You know, when you're 35, you're like, man, I'm never going to retire. You're 45. You're like, wait a minute. It's like 20 years. I've now been working longer than I years and you're like, 60 retire. You might be halfway through your working career. And yeah, they probably could go to their 401k and pick a great investment. That's fine. But they don't know if they're on the right track and they're, and I'm sure they've listened to the show. Now they're saying, Hey, Let's just see what we need to do to get on the right track and we'll help them do it. And then once you have a financial plan and once you have set goals, priorities and know kind of where you want to go and what you need to need to do to accomplish it, the investment selection becomes easy. I mean, the, the investment selections, it's not an afterthought, but it's easy after you know what needs to be done. That's all the hard work. Yeah, okay. it's kind of uh, what the investment selection is. It's really a product of the goals and how do you these are your goals. This is the portfolio that's going to help you accomplish those goals. What it's about, Elias, like we always said, it could be a great investment, just not for you. If we know that the the real time horizon is 20 or 30 years and you're in your 70s, do you really have the time to wait for it to come back? That's no. the things we do for people. Okay, so we went through retirement plan, Elias, college planning. We help people plan for college. We assess and make recommendations for insurance protection if they need it. Okay, we don't do a whole lot of insurance, but here's a great example. We had an individual we work with. She's been trying to sort out an insurance mess for six months. And I said, well, 
And she's trying to do it herself, working directly with the insurance companies. Which is good for her for taking it on. Yeah, and of they've done a great job saving. And she just said, hey, this is really, really, really frustrating. I said, well, I have a relationship with that company. Why don't you just let us do it? And she just is like, I don't think she thought we'd actually get it done. About two Maybe, or three weeks. Maybe, but it's done. It's so done. It's less and, than a month. And, and it's, it's happy. Mm-hmm. But we're not getting paid to do the service work and insurance policy somebody else wrote. But it's part of what we do in this full, full holistic planning. Like, we need to help her with that part of her life. Yeah. And I, I have a suggestion regarding insurance and planning. I do think people should go to their investment advisor, financial planner for insurance to get like a real analysis of what you need because kind of a trap that I see people fall into or just we see a lot of different products that people own and there's so many products out there that have bells and whistles and no one can understand it and they're very complicated and it was probably a buying decision made on emotion instead of logic. I do think a financial planner can help you dial in what are your actual insurance needs and what products are actually going to help you spread that risk appropriately, not just sell you something because it pays a nice commission to the insurance agent selling it to you? I refer more of it than I actually do. How many people turn 65, ask, they ask me what I think about you know, the different Medicare options. I don't sell it. I don't do it, but I'll tell them what I think about it. I don't sell it. I send it somewhere else. I mean... We, we don't do most of this stuff in-house. It's just easier for me to refer it out to someone that's a professional, but what I don't want, and it's not that I can't do it. It's that I'm not in the insurance game every day, so why would I want to try to do it? But I can give you what I believe is appropriate and what you should do, and then, yeah, go and go do it with your insurance guy, but just don't take their blind recommendation. Here's why, and this is a great example. If you went to buy long-term care insurance, from an insurance professional. And this is not a knock on any insurance professional whatsoever. They're needed. They provide a very, very good service to people. But their purview of buying long-term care is that you're going to buy enough coverage to cover the entire bill at the long-term care facility. So if that facility costs 80000 a year, you're going to buy a long-term care policy that provides $80,000 a year of benefit with inflation, all the other stuff. Well, the reality is if somebody goes into a nursing home facility, they don't need the full boat probably. No. They have they might have social security. Well, that doesn't go away if you go to the nursing home. They might have they might have a portfolio that generates income or a pension or all those other things. And instead of buying the Cadillac plan, if you want to buy it, great, go buy it. It's expensive, but buy it. They could buy some type of a gap plan that fills the holes of what they can't afford themselves. Because if you think of how you insure long-term care, there's really through a couple of ways. One, you can ignore the problem. That's not very, you know, I don't know. Adult-like. There you go. That's not adulting. Two, you can go on Title 19, which is spend down all your assets. And honestly, for a lot of people, it's probably the best option based upon the cost of long-term care insurance. Three, you can self-insure. And people, everybody wants to self-insure. Well, there's a couple ways to figure out if you can self-insure. Number one, if you're doing a financial plan, you can quantify that that financial plan will run an analysis that tells you exactly how much coverage you need, if any. So the easy way for someone at home to do this is you add up all your income sources. 
So you got a pension, Social Security, and what's, let's say, what's 4% of your investments. Whatever that adds up to, that's how much you can afford on a monthly basis. If you can't afford the full boat, then you buy an insurance policy. So that's the fourth way. You transfer the risk to an insurance company to handle the risk. But insurance planning is important. But that's why you should consult and get a plan done by an investment professional. doesn't mean they have to do the insurance. You have an insurance person you like, use them. But you could take that information and go to that insurance professional and be like, this is what I want to do after a full financial planning analysis. Because most insurance agencies don't have financial planning software like we do. They're not licensed to run financial plans. They could run a needs analysis. They're not licensed to do a financial plan. Correct. And they're in a roundabout way. They're going for premium. So you got to get the biggest premium. And the other, the other there, thing, there's that, some insurance agents out of that way, but there's others that are truly looking out for their best yeah. interest. They just believe that you should cover the full boat because if they don't cover the whole thing and they didn't run an analysis at some level, they probably have some culpability. Yeah, that's true. So there's some, some legal liability if they don't actually go say, Hey, you need to buy a, you know, fully insured long-term care policy. Yeah. The other, the other insurance item that sometimes I see, and it kind of makes me cringe. It's with younger people, you know, they'll have, they're paying hundred, 200 bucks a month for $200,000 worth of like whole life insurance. And that's to me, life insurance is really income replacement when you think about risk and mitigating risk. So, you know, that's another one where that, I see that and I'm like, gosh, you really just need some term life insurance that actually covers what your family would need if you were gone. You're, but 100000 or 200000 for a young family on the parents, that's not enough coverage. I want everybody listening to the show to think about this. You buy insurance to buy insurance. You do not buy insurance for an investment. Yeah, that's there you go. That's as simple as you why, can why, state it. When was the last time you bought it? When was the last time I bought car insurance so my vision was covered? It's like the same thing. You buy life insurance to protect your life, not to turn it into an investment. If you have permanent life insurance, you should go to our website and come in for a meeting and let us analyze it for you. And I'm going to get beat up by permanent life insurance guys out there. It's okay. Oh, yeah. I actually so I had a conversation a while I, I, back when a friend of mine asked me about some permanent life insurance that he had. And I just said, look, simply stated, I don't believe in it. I don't utilize it. Um, but, and he has a good relationship with the agent he bought it from. And I Some, said, look, someday. you're going to talk to him and he's going to have 12 compelling reasons why I'm wrong. It's not going to change my philosophy in, fif on it. in 15 years when the insurance company changes all the rules and there's not half the money they said he was going to have in there. Guess what's going to happen? Eli, you were right. I mean, well, literally, I if you take the difference to buy, you know how much a $200,000 term life policy costs in a 25-year-old? Oh, Probably man. 20 bucks. Yeah. But they're going to spend $200 on the long-term care. If they just took the difference and put it in a Roth IRA, and here's the big selling point of how these, especially young people, hey, I know, I started in that side of it. You know, I came out of college and said, you're going to be a financial planner. Well, financial planning in Cedar Rapids is go sell permanent life insurance to your friends. You know, get a case of a beer and go sell some life way. insurance. <laughs> but, you know, oh, it's going to be tax-free and all these bells and whistles. Well, guess what? Unless you're maxing out a Roth IRA, you don't need a tax-free investment. You have one. It's called a Roth IRA, 
right? So that's yeah. one, check the box. Two, unless you're maxing out your qualified retirement plan at work, which probably has a Roth option, which would allow you to put what, 19,500 a year in, you don't need a tax-free investment, so that's irrelevant. You only need a death benefit, and that's to protect your family or your loved ones. If you're single, if you're 23 and single, no kids, why do you need a bunch of life insurance? That you probably gives you a tax-free investment. And, you know, if anybody ever tells you you're buying an investment, but then someone calls and says you need to schedule a physical, the siren should go off. Yeah. Because the, the you're really buying life insurance. And the siren should be sounding. Yeah. So a couple of things we do. I just want to briefly talk about how you work with the financial advisor. And we have a five-step process in our office, which really is designed to make sure that we're a good fit for people, but they're also a good fit for us. You know, there's a lot of good planners out there. You just got to find a team that shares your common beliefs. If you don't believe in financial planning and you think that you can be a stock picker and you think you can beat the stock market, you're probably not a good fit for us. But if you're looking for holistic advice, you're looking to get a full financial plan, make sure you're on the right track and take our recommendations, and you're open-minded, yeah, those are the types of people that we look to work with. And not everybody's a good fit for us. No, and that's, not not everyone is, um, but I, I think the key thing there, if you're going to engage with a firm and you're going to get professional financial planning and, and, and portfolio management, really just err on the side of implement the recommendations. Because there are, there's a, you know, we're a great firm. Like you said, there's a lot of great firms out there. But once when you decide to delegate that part of your life, just delegate it and take the recommendations. Because they're not, most people in our business are not, they're doing typically what's in their client's best interest. I do believe that. And here's the last thing I want to leave people with and why we believe so much in this planning process there are going to be events in your life that happen every single day, every month, every year. And if your financial plan was, I created this document five years ago, I put it into a drawer at my house, but it's still good because I can say I have a financial plan. It's not accurate. We've been through COVID. We went through a great market run up. We went through a bear market now. If you're not going back, and you're not turning your plan into a dynamic decision-making tree or model, whatever you want to call it, you're doing yourself a disservice because all of the technology that's out there links your accounts into this financial plan. It literally can be updated in like two minutes. So there's no reason to not have an updated financial plan at least once a year. It doesn't cost any more money. It doesn't cost to take any more time. I mean, what's it take to update the financial plan? If For it's us? not linked, well, we need some statements. We need 401k balances. I mean, yeah, there's it's not certain, much. Yeah, there's outside investments and in 401ks. We're dependent upon clients to provide that information on a statement, but the accounts we manage update every night in an overnight cycle. So they're updated every day, essentially. And the financial plan kind of becomes a scorecard, right? We mm -hmm. keep scoring everything we do. Your score doesn't have to be how much money you have. It can be your probability of success. It could be, think about it. If a person said, we don't really ever get to a point where like, you need to have X amount of dollars. Ours is all about, this is how much you can spend. This is how much more you need to save to get to this spending goal. 
Well, as you go and change a person's financial plan, maybe their spending goal is 7,000. The probability of success was 90%. We go rerun that and now it's 98%. Well, maybe now the spending goal can go up. There's all these ways you can kind of keep score, but having an updated financial plan, you should be looking at doing it. If you've got one that's been in a drawer for five years, you can go to the website and go to btwellshow.com. We'd be happy to you know, update that plan for you. With that said, you look like you're out of words today, Elias. <laughs> it just seemed like a good end. Um, uh, once again, if anybody wants help, btwellshow.com. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.